Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Welcome to today's show with Rich Wilson. And he's done something that most likely none of our listeners have done. What do you think, Rich? <laughs> Hello, Brad. Uh, yes, good to be here with you. And so, what uh, is you? Uh, what you have done is you were one of the official finishers, a very select group of humans on the planet, to have finished the Vendée Globe, which is a nonstop around the world twenty-eight thousand mile solo yacht race. Uh, yeah. You did that <laughs> in. You did that in. I, I said uh, before we got on recording. I said what. Um, what year was your, your race? And you said it was the 2008-2009 <laughs> race. So this race starts in November. And um, tell me about uh, the finish line or what's the rules there? Sure. Well, the, uh, the race starts on the west coast of France, in a little town called Les sables Long. And you head south through the Atlantic. You turn east uh, around South Africa. You go across the Indian Ocean. You go south of Australia and New Zealand. You go across the Pacific Ocean. Uh, you go around Cape Horn, southern tip of South America, and then you come back up through the Atlantic uh, to finish at the same port. And so, oh, that sounds so you, that sounds pretty easy when you say it that way. Yes, uh, uh, there was one competitor who had a small uh, three by five card, and she just wrote all the those different marks, and she just checked them off every once in a while, and showed that on a video. It was fairly amusing. It seemed very simple on a three by five card. So if you're not familiar with this race, we'll put some links in the, uh, in the transcript. It's, it's spelled V-E-N-D-E-E with an accent there and then globe. And if you Google that, you'll see some images and some commentary about just, just how unbelievable this challenge is. I mean, it's widely agreed to be the most grueling and dangerous prolonged endurance competition on the planet. If you think about the, the Tour de France and how confined it is, they're just riding their bikes around a country and these guys are going, remember, it's unassisted solo events. So when you skipper off from shore and wave goodbye to the crowd, you're, you're totally on your own to circumnavigate the planet. Yes, that's right, um, and it is a it is a big challenge. And one of the things that's great about it is the support from the from the French public, um, uh, where it's obviously a, a competitive event. It's uh, I've, I've described it as sort of like stepping into NASCAR here if you're an American. Um, but the French really regard it as number one, it's a human adventure, uh, and number two, it's a competition. Even though they have the the greatest sailors racing the race, um, and the French really are the greatest ocean racers, um, because they understand that whoever is going to win this race, um, it's going to be a great adventure for them. They have to sail this massive boat. The boats are 60 feet long, uh, 90 feet high, um, and uh, uh, it's not going to go smoothly for whoever wins the race. Uh, so it's, it is that human adventure first, and they say 
uh, if you finish this course, you're a winner. That's what they want. They want you to sail your best. They want you to tell them what it's like at sea while you're at sea. And then they want you to come home. So these modern times, the communications are wonderful. They have GPS uh, tracking and keeping track of the race. And I, I guess you're able to report back with um, what videos, audio recordings. How do you keep in touch with uh, your fans on land? Yes, well, uh, we do have good satellite telephone communications now. Um, and the, the, the data rates are still pretty slow. Uh, in that race, we our high-speed satellite telephone was at 56K baud rate, which was the old dial-up uh, telephone modem. Um, so it takes a while to send uh, even short uh, videos. Um, that's a bit of a challenge. But I mean, we, we do a lot of communications because we have um, a separate objective, which has been to create big school programs that link this adventure um, into classrooms. Um, I've been a school teacher many years ago, and the biggest challenge for a school teacher is how do you get the kids to pay attention? And so the idea is that if you give them a live letter rip adventure, um, they won't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So they will come back tomorrow. Uh, there's risk and uncertainty, and they will then pay attention. And then the science and the geography and the math all flow freely. Uh, so that's really um, a motivating objective for me while we're at sea. And um, I know that when times have gotten very tough at sea, and they certainly have, that uh, knowing that the school kids are out there has helped uh, me to keep going on, keep pushing along. Uh, and your site where this all happens is called sitesalive.com? Yes, that's correct. S-I-T-E-S-A-L-I-V-E.com. Right. Um, so when you finished, there were only 30 boats starting this thing, uh, by the way, because the, well, the financial commitment and the resources and then, um, you know, who's willing to go sail around the world for, uh, in your case, you completed the race in 121 days? Yes, that's correct. Uh, there were, as you said, 30 boats started the race. Of those 30 boats, 20 were brand new, built specifically for the race, uh, there were 10 uh, older generation boats, and we had one of those older generation boats. Um, and so the uh, at the end, there were only 11 boats that finished out of the 30, and I finished ninth, which was a, a great victory, I think. <laughs> That's certainly how I regard it. Yeah, oh my gosh. Uh, and you're also the oldest, uh, the oldest skipper in the race and the only American in the race, so and probably having the best connection with the students back on land too. Yes, um, I think that that's clearly the case for the with the school connection. Um, and yes, only the second American to finish. There's only been three Americans that had actually entered the race. Uh, the first was Mike Plant, who sailed the first race. He had to stop in New Zealand for uh, help uh, for a repair, and then he com continued along, uh, completed the course, but didn't finish officially because of that stop. Um, and then when he was sailing to the start of the second race um, from the U.S. over to France, uh, his keel broke off mid-Atlantic, the boat turned over, and he was lost. Um, uh, he was a good guy, didn't know him exceptionally well, but uh, a little bit great guy. Um, and then in 2004, uh, uh, Bruce Schwab, who was originally from California and now residing in Maine, uh, became the first American to finished the race. Uh, he finished in ninth place as well, did a great, great job. And then uh, I was the next one in 2008. There was unfortunately no American in the 2012 race. Um, we are looking to go back um, to 2016. We have a 
more modern generation boat uh, toward the 2016 and hoping to really create a global school program off that. Right. As you mentioned briefly, this is only every four years because of all the logistics and preparation involved. And um, I, I, I noticed an interesting stat in your your bio material that only 46 people have ever finished. Is that is that correct? Yes, a few more than that now, but uh, yeah. we put that in there as a way to try to, uh, particularly here in the U.S., get some uh, respect for the sport of uh, shorthanded ocean racing. Um, we have a triangle graphic that we show, which shows that uh, 3,000 people have summited Mount Everest and 500 astronauts have been launched into space and about 50 have finished uh, a solo nonstop round the world um, sailing voyage. So uh, it's a small group, but uh, it's a it's a great group. And I think one of the things that, that I really appreciated about it was that the camaraderie among the group of skippers is really extraordinary because uh, for the vast majority of this race, you are way away from where you would get help from any Coast Guards around the world. And so um, often, particularly in the South, uh, if you got in trouble, the nearest help might be from one of your competitors. And everybody understands this. And everybody know, everybody has probably had the daylight scared out of them several to many times. And so uh, there's a wonderful humility within that group, um, I think, that uh, is very appealing to me. Well, uh, this is no no funny business, and as we get into really what what's um, what's entailed out here, one of the things that pops out is, uh, and if you're envisioning you know someone sitting on the deck of their boat and kicking back and getting a tan, um, I know you do get tan out there, but you also don't get to sleep much, and in your case, um, you're getting forty minute stints of sleep uh, around the clock. Is that how it works? Uh, yes, you sort of get what you can get. Uh, we had a, a gentleman named Claudio Stampi, who's a, both a medical doctor and a PhD, and was skipper of a of a fully crewed round the race, uh, around the world race boat uh, back a number of years. He was a, and his expertise was on sleep, and so he has been an advisor to us um, through the years on various voyages. Uh, the target is to get uh, ninety to hundred minute uh, nap in. Uh, which is uh, the, the length of uh, one biological sleep cycle, uh, and try to get a few of those in a day. Uh, generally, you try to get four to five hours, maybe six. That would be uh, wonderful. Um, but uh, generally what happens is that the 90 minutes gets truncated to 45 minutes or 40 minutes or 30 minutes and on down. And some of the skippers will say, and I would completely believe them that they will, go around on just 20 minutes of 20-minute uh, naps, um, string a, try to string a lot of those together uh, to get up to the sort of four to five to six hours. So one of your primal blueprint laws of get adequate sleep, we're definitely not doing that. Um, it's uh, pretty hard to solve that problem, though. Uh, well, yeah, in your case, you had a malfunction on the boat. So in the last six weeks of the race, you were, had to get up and visually check the... Um, the mast, and in one case, climb it uh, to, to, to fix something. Tell us about that. Yes. Um, well, th- those were actually two different uh, two different aspects of it. We had a failure of the wind uh, vane uh, uh, electronics at the top of the mast. We have two. We have a primary and a backup. They both failed coming across the uh, Indian Ocean and then the Pacific. 
And so the upshot of that was that the autopilot, which will be able to steer the boat either on a compass course or according to the wind direction, and therefore, if, it's, if it can do it according to the wind direction, it's much more efficient uh, because as the wind changes direction, then the boat will change course a little bit and it'll keep the sails in the proper um, alignment with respect to the wind. Um, so if those, those both fail, and so we had to go on compass course the rest of the way, which is very inefficient. Um, and so that's why I felt I had to go into the cockpit every 20 minutes for the last six weeks of the race to uh, take a take a, a visual of the masthead wind instruments and adjust the autopilot accordingly. So that was, uh, that was really hard. And it, it, uh, uh, one of the things that happens is that you then it really affects your mental state and your emotions as well. Uh, there was an episode where I imagined, uh, that I had to download an anchor uh, through the satellite telephone to the boat. And <laughs> if this came up when I was asleep or not asleep or in between, but I wrestled with that for about 18 very wide awake uh, and alert hours until I realized that I actually didn't have to do that. Um, the problem that I foresaw was not that you can't do that, uh, but the problem was that the uh, the 56k baud rate high-speed satellite telephone system was malfunctioning, and so it was going to take absolutely forever to download <laughs> to, this. to get that anchor. Yeah. 2.4k, yeah, yeah, the 2.4k baud rate satellite. So, so that's a little bit of what's going on. And I'm glad you can tell that story lucidly now on on land several years later. Yes, well, the, the solo sailors will all probably have their uh, corresponding stories, I imagine. Uh, so your cousin, Rick Simpson, is the guy who um, got us connected. Rick's a big primal guy. Um, he noticed that line that Mark dropped in the primal connection about the Vendée Globe race and just uh, putting that out there as an extreme comparison. And he said, guess what? My, uh, my cousin did that thing. You should get him on a podcast. And we said, okay, let's do it, man. And Rick uh, came up with this really cool uh, grid because we were talking about the angle. I mean, the show's about primal living, right? And this is about a yacht race around the globe where you're not sleeping much. But as a matter of fact, when you put it all together and you go through the 10 laws, um, a lot of them are represented by this, um, this lifestyle and this, this goal that you're pursuing. So um, one of the main ones is you're, you have a severe uh, condition of asthma that you've had your whole life. And so getting out on the water is fostering uh, improvement in that condition is that so? Uh, yes, I was diagnosed with severe asthma when I was one year old kid, and when I was growing up, there weren't any asthma medications for home use. The only medication available was epinephrine if you had an attack that was severe enough to go to the emergency room. So the um, the medications nowadays, like the Advair discus, uh, which is a combination drug. Um, uh, Dolaire, which is an anti-IgE, and Merck's of Singular. Uh, none of those were available. Uh, even the short-term bronchodilators, the albuterol, the rescue inhalers, they call them now, were not available. So um, it was really hard. And I think that uh, up until I was about 15 years old, um, there were probably, I don't think there were any of these drugs uh, available. And I would look back on that as uh, when you're a kid with asthma, 
you can't go out and run around outside with your friends. You won't have your friends for very long. So you really push yourself to be able to go out and run around with your friends. And so I think that a lot of that motivation uh, that I had from those years uh, has kept along uh, and now or manifests itself in trying to do a race like the Fonday Globe. So um, going to sea definitely does help it because I get away from uh, many of the allergens which are triggers for me. Um, sometimes I, I, I say that uh, I'm a little bit allergic to land <laughs> in a way <laughs> because it's grass and trees and flowers and smoke and cats and dogs and perfume and it goes on and on. Um, so you get offshore and you don't have any of that, uh, which is really nice. Um, the, the only uh, sort of counterbalancing aspect is that I'm, uh, I also have stress as a trigger for my asthma, and um, the race is not stress-free. I can imagine. And Cousin Rick reports that you're eating pretty well. You're not, you're not calling yourself a full-on card-holding member of the Primal community, but you eat a lot of um, fish, meat, veggie salads, high quality organic foods, make your own food. And then when you're, I mean, you have to be in, you have to be in shape heading offshore. There's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, it's a, it's an extreme endurance challenge. So you're paying attention to your diet. And then when you're out there on the boat, um, what does the dietary pattern look like there? Yes. Uh, at sea, the target has been uh, for, for this race, we came up with 6,000 calories a day. Um, I probably got to 52, 5,400 calories a day, and um, that would be in four full meals, every six hours a full meal, um, and then snacking in between. And you just have to really keep pouring in the calories because if you you just can't let yourself get low on energy. You get tired, that's for sure. You get exhausted, but you've got to have something in the bank uh, if that sail change on the foredeck suddenly uh, with a squall coming along or a gale coming along has to be done now, you have to have something. You have to be able to respond right away. When the boat needs you, you have to go. And it, it is not a function of your sleep. It's not a function of your energy level. So whatever you can do to keep something in the bank um, is ultimately the, the great sort of safety device. Well, that's uh, sprinting at a moment's notice, one of the primal laws. And as far as the other exercise laws, you're keeping in great cardiovascular shape. You ran four Boston marathons in the time back, and now you're doing uh, workouts with a trainer that are um, mixing in some intensity. Yes, um, that, that's exactly right. I have a great trainer here in Marblehead, Massachusetts, a named Marty Shea, former uh, uh, All-American distance runner at Boston University, and then turned to cycling, and she's uh, actually been the world time trial champion in her age group for uh, two of, I think, the last three years. And then the, there's a great cycling race up Mount Washington. She's won it 11 times in a row. <laughs> and uh, she's a really imaginative trainer, uh, tough trainer, and um, she understood this race uh, completely, which was great. Um, not that she'd been exposed to it before, but she was uh, very sort of flexible in coming up with um, uh, routines to do, uh, and she had a great <laughs> she had a great uh, motivation for herself in that, which was simply that she said, "If if you don't come home, I don't want it to be on my conscience that your fitness level had anything <laughs> to do with it." 
So she really worked me hard. And, and um, I said to her, like, I'm never going to be the strongest. I'm never going to have the best aerobic capacity. Uh, but I will do whatever you say. And I want you to be able to say when we, we are finished and I head off to France that uh, nobody ever worked harder. Um, and so she confirmed that at the end. And so that was really good. She said, you're ready to go. And um, it helped hugely. It helped hugely to put in that effort before going off on this race. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine unless we could watch a, a video documentary or something. But, you know, if you get tired or fatigued or, or, or whatnot out there, um, it could cost you. So this is no funny business when you're you're working hard on land like a professional athlete. Yes, that's right. Uh, and the the sailors who are from France, they're all training as well. They're sailing a lot. Uh, so they get a lot of their training just in being offshore. Uh, they have a lot of these kinds of races, not quite the, I mean, the Vendée Globe's the king of the of the races. Um, they have a lot of solo transatlantic races or double-handed transatlantic races in a wide variety of boats. Um, so they're out there all the time. And we just don't have any of those races here in the U.S. So um, really to do the proper training, you either go out by yourself or you go to, go to France and uh, participate in those races. And when you're in the gym, one of the workouts mentioned with Marty was um, you're holding two 20-pound dumbbells at, at shoulder height to, to destabilize you up high and then doing one-legged deep knee bends on a trampoline. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, that was one of her torture tests. Uh, and the reason for that is that um, you know offshore, uh, your, your upper body will can get stronger and stronger and stronger because you're always pulling ropes and grinding winches and uh, hanging on. Uh, and your legs, because they are basically uh, statically supporting you, um, they will atrophy over the course of time. And so you have to be super strong in your legs at the start so that as they atrophy, and as you go around the world, then you will still have something left at the end. And I could certainly notice it towards the end. The last uh, couple of weeks, uh, the legs were um, were a challenge. So it was good that we did all that work. Uh, and now, when you're when you're done with this 121 day effort, and you come back home, what is the recovery like? I'm, I imagine you're going to be grabbing some quality sleep for a long time to to rebalance and get back to homeostasis. Well, the. Uh, for the hours that you have lost, if you've, let's say you're getting five hours a day, um, so you're losing uh, three hours a day around the world, you get that back pretty quickly. And in fact, what happens is that you're so excited to actually make it back that uh, I think that first night I only slept about six hours. I wanted to get right back to the boat and talk to people and <laughs> tell the story about uh, about being at sea for that long a period of time. And certainly. Uh, in France, uh, where this is such a huge sports event, uh, that's it, it's uh, they just love to talk to people. Uh, they love to talk to the skippers about it. And I had some high school French from 40 years before, so I would always attempt to speak in French, and they really liked that a lot as well, just out of respect for the French and respect for the race. So it was really good. I, I just loved it. It was a 
spectacular experience. Uh, and, and so this site's alive. Is it is it chronicling your preparation too? Uh, I mean, that's where you communicate most of your information out of, right? Yeah, so we're starting to do that now. Um, we've kept a little bit of a low profile. We were able to uh, acquire a boat a year ago that will be faster for the same or less physical effort. That was the single bullet point um, requirement if we were to try to do this race again. Uh, and so we have that boat and we've been doing some, uh, making some changes in it and some, did some training this past summer with the boat. Uh, so that is, uh, yeah, Sites Alive is where we would have uh, uh, news reports about the, about the race uh, and our preparation leading up to the race. Um, the, the school program is quite comprehensive. There's a curriculum that's uh, correlated to standards uh, now to the core curriculum. And so it absolutely applies uh, within the schools. And we reached about 250,000 students in the U.S. last time uh, in 2008, 2009. And, and uh, we really want to make this global next time. And one of the things that's wonderful is that the technology change has been spectacular since the 2008-2009 race. And you think about the, the iPhone came out in 2007. Now smartphones are ubiquitous. The first iPad didn't come out until 2010. Um, and the satellite speeds have doubled. So hmm. there's many, many more opportunities to get uh, to make these connections back from the boat at sea. And is this a, uh, a charitable endeavor, this Sites Alive program that's dispensed to schools that are interested? Yes, it's a 501c3 um, here in Massachusetts. Wow. We've done these programs now, as I said earlier, for about 20 years. And most of the programs, we've done 75 of them, most of them have been in partnership with other organizations, and five of them have been, uh, five of the 75 have been our voyages. Um, we, we have added the constituency when I've gone to see of asthmatics because we try to use this to, to show um, that you can still do things that you want to do if you have asthma. Um, we've, <laughs> since 2008, 2009 now, we've added a new constituency, which is seniors, because <laughs> I will be 66 at the start of this next race. And uh, I was the senior skipper last time. Not sure if that'll happen again this time, maybe There'll be some others that will come along. Um, most of the competitors are in their 30s and 40s. Uh, but it's, a, it's, it's just a great group, so it's wonderful to be part of that. And one hopes to go off, uh, race around the world. You do your best. You push all the time. I do all the communications ashore um, and come back with a, with a great adventure under your belt. Right. So with the, with the interested, uh, mostly middle school students, you say, and you publish a teacher's guide for a 15-week lesson program. So the teacher has that. And then during the race, you're writing uh, live from the boat. You're writing essays that are uh, connected back to the teacher's guide and then also publishing daily audio, ship's log, photos, video, and Q&A. Yes, that's right. I spend about two hours out of every 24 uh, on average working uh, on the school program from sea. Um, and uh, some folks have said, well, boy, why do you do that? It's a sailboat race. you got to race. But for me, that's one of the great motivating factors. And uh, uh, I, I think that uh, I, it, it, it really keeps me going when the times are tough. And you know, we'd have all of that uh, information coming back um, pretty constantly. 
Um, we also had a, a pretty interesting feature, which was we had a we assembled a group called our team of experts, uh, because I wouldn't be as uh, able to write as much as when um, we did some previous voyages that were double-handed, two of us on board the boat. Um, so we assembled this team of experts, which were um, the head of maritime affairs for the U.S. government. We had a professor of aeronautical engineering from MIT. We had my emergency doctor here in Boston. Um, we had a best-selling author. Uh, we had a fisheries expert. We had um, the climate change expert. We had a tanker broker, a tanker owner. It was a really interesting group that students usually don't get a chance to hear from. And uh, you know, when you're growing up, you didn't really hear about friends of your parents who were really accomplished. And you didn't hear about whether there were trials and tribulations in getting to that stage of accomplishment. <laughs> right. So uh, <laughs> people are, you know, all the, all the experts are, it's just a great thing. You just, the kids are exposed to this wide variety of uh, expertise. Rich, that's a wonderful program at sitesalive.com you have going. You're an inspiration out there to the 60-plus the crowd now, getting ready for the 2016-2017 um, the Vendee Globe. You're going to be 66 on the start line. And I, I think it's uh, very interesting what you're doing, and especially giving back and making that experience come alive for hundreds of thousands of middle school kids and, and millions of other readers of your reports. So... Rich Wilson on the Primal Blueprint podcast, kind of a unique and unusual guest mixed in there with all our health and eating experts. I hope you listeners enjoyed it. Thank you so much for coming on, Rich. Well, my pleasure, Brad, and thanks very much for the invitation. We'll talk to you next time. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Safeguard your health with the most comprehensive all-in-one nutritional supplement on the planet, Primal Nutrition's Damage Control Master Formula. Forget mixing and matching with multiple bottles of individual agents. Now you can just take a single packet of the most potent and optimally balanced multivitamin, multimineral, antioxidant formula available on the market. You'll enjoy complete immune system, cardiovascular, memory, nerve, bone, liver, and anti-stress support, and much more. With 51 research-proven ingredients, Damage Control Master Formula helps you combat oxidative damage in every cell and every system in your body and shore up any dietary shortcomings with complete protection. Order Damage Control Master Formula today at PrimalBlueprint.com and check out the incredible free shipping offer for our convenient and custom-designed auto-ship program.